many right ideas about God, but also many wrong ideas. Unless we are charged to rethink our theology and our ideas about God every single day. This is what you do in your study. A word should speak to your heart and change your wrong concepts, your wrong ideas about God every single day without exception. It's called sanctification, the renewal of our mind. And it will not stop until the end of our days here on this earth. Somebody told me, I don't know necessarily if it's true or not, but someone told me that even in heaven, we will get a more and more perfect understanding of God. Now the understanding and knowledge of God in heaven will be very different. It will be immediate, absolute personal knowledge where no sin is between me and God, my understanding of God it will be very different. But as I said, someone told me that we need to live an eternity in heaven to understand an infinite God. There's always, always more to know about him because he is infinite. There's no end to knowing more about him. And I think this will be the best experience we will ever have. I'm looking forward to it. To know more and more about God. To see him face to face. This will top every other experience. I can't imagine how wonderful this will be. This is heaven for me. That was my fourth point. Let's go on to number five. Analysis of nature and our rational faculties leads to the conclusion that these faculties themselves are not autonomous. Or not autonomous. Autonomy. What do I mean by autonomy? Consists of two Greek words. Translated self and law. I am constituting myself to be the ultimate authority on everything meaning my rational capacities are the ultimate authority on everything. This, this is what I mean by autonomy. No one can tell me how I should live. I do my own thing. I go my own way. Now we could sing Frank Sinatra's song here, My Own Way. Probably you know it. I'm sure. Mr. Bob Smarts, he knows it. And he knows it from personal experience, I suppose. And thankfully, you repented of that. I mean, the message of that. <laughs> now, let's bring in his wife and see <laughs> if it's true. <laughs> no, I'm just kidding. <laughs> I'm sure he did. So did I. Thank be to God. He gave us the opportunity to repent, and there's lots to repent. Sorry to say. But thank be to God that there is room to, of repentance, for repentance, and He accepts us and forgives us. He needs to forgive a lot of intellectual sins. A lot of them. 
our rotten thinking about God and ourselves in this room, even as Christians. All the wrong thoughts which pop into my mind, day in, day out. Martin Luther said, we can't help birds fly on our heads, but we can prevent them building their nests on our head. I think this is a very wise statement. Get rid of these birds as before they start building their nests. So our reason is not the ultimate judge of anything. Rather, their nature is to point to the ultimate judge beyond themselves. Sense experience often errs, and human reason does too. And neither our senses nor our reason supplies by itself a criterion of truth, a standard by which we may discern whether any statement is true or false. Reason is not capable of doing that, even though it pretends to do it. It pretends to do it every single day, and yet it's not capable of that task. We need a standard external to ourselves, not an internal standard which pretends to be the standard. Reason is not the standard. Reason needs a standard given to it. And that standard is given to reason by the word of God. In other words, reason won't teach us anything unless you supply the premises of its rational arguments. Any more than a computer can teach you anything without a program. What would be a computer without a program? It would be a useless chunk of wires and transistors, nothing else. Number six. One may therefore distinguish a Christian from a non-Christian use of reason. Christians will supply their reasoning with biblical premises. From them, what is reasonable in the final analysis is what God says. God says. Therefore, a Christian epistemology theory of knowledge, there can in principle be no conflict between our reasoning and God's word. However much our sin may distort the harmony between them. The objection therefore fails. Once again, I remind you of the objection. It is possible to distinguish our own thoughts from God's word. The answer which I try to give here in these six points is yes, we can distinguish both. We have to distinguish both. Our own thoughts are only rethinking what God has given us authoritatively as truth. It is not capable of constituting truth by itself. Human reasoning is not suited to be the ultimate criterion of truth and falsity, even though we do use human reasoning to discern what is God's word and to ascertain its meaning. The reasoning by which we discern what God's word is and by which we ascertain its meaning ought to be Christian reasoning. Reasoning operating on Christian premises. Reasoning which is itself subject to the word of God. God's word, not human reason, is the ultimate criterion. This is my foundation. Exert 
the greatest effort in building this foundation around. If you feel here, you feel in every other aspect of your life, including being a pastor, being a father, being a son and a daughter, being anything else in this world, you will fail miserably if this foundation is not built around. Take care. This is my only serious injunction here at this point. Take care that this foundation is built around and not mixed with human wisdom. And I heard some examples yesterday from pastors where this mixing is done at the seminaries. System theory. And it really grieves me to no end. I'm confessing here that it is really a personal grief which I bear because one of my relatives, a dear man, I really love him, he's one of my relatives, he's the dean, or so-called dean, he's in his 90s now, dean of Christian psychology, so-called. And what he did, like no other man, he mixed Christian truth with fallen human wisdom called psychology. You probably know his name. As I said, he's a dear man. But I do grieve if I think about his life's ministry and work. He's a believer. I have no doubt about that. I think somewhere he took a wrong turn. <clears throat> Good. God's word, our presupposition. This is why this school of apologetics is called presuppositional apologetics. Because we presuppose the word of God in everything we do, in everything we say, in everything we think, including apologetics. We presuppose the ultimate authority of God's word. Once we have made the distinction between God's word and the imaginations of our own heart, God calls us to live according to the former. God's word is true, therefore dependable, though every human authority may lie. May lie. Where do I get that information? I, I could get it from personal experience, but that's not really dependable, right? I could err. I could be wrong. Where do I get it? Romans 3, verse 4. If we adopt the word of God as our ultimate commitment, our ultimate standard, our ultimate criterion of truth and falsity, God's word then becomes our presupposition. That is to say, since we use it to evaluate all other beliefs, we must regard it as more certain than any other belief. Noah had no empirical evidence that the world would be destroyed by a flood. Only the evidence of the word of God, that was all he had. God told him he will destroy the world. He will judge the world for its wickedness by water. 
it had not rained yet. How did Noah know that this would happen? There was nothing to go by, nothing whatsoever. He had not risked, he had not experienced any little raindrop fall on his nose. And yet God said, this is how it's going to be. I'll destroy this wicked world and its inhabitants by water. Thankfully, he obeyed that word, trusted that word, knew that word is dependable, even though he couldn't understand what it said, necessarily, at least not by his own experience. How was he able to do that? What does the word of God say in regards to the enabling factor? It's very clear, isn't it? By grace. He believed God. By grace. He believed God. He was not able to do it on his own. The enabling came from God, by grace, was given to him freely by God. Hebrew 11 verse 7. Others heard that word but rejected it. Second Peter 2 verse 5. Doubtless with much laughter. Abram believed God, even though the apparent empirical evidence contradicted God's word. By empirical I mean Knowledge gained by experience. This is what I mean by empirical. So the empirical, apparent empirical evidence contradicted God's word. What was that empirical evidence? What does the word of God say? We were way beyond childbearing. Way beyond the age of childbearing. What was the reaction of Sarah? See, she laughed. Would this be our reaction? That we would be in her shoes, standing in her shoes? It would be probably our reaction too. But Paul commends Abraham's unwavering faith in God's word despite the temptation to disbelieve. Romans 4 verse 20 And God commended him for his The New Testament commands those who believe even without empirical signs. John 20, verse 29, the key verse of the entire gospel. Or at least one of them. And it commands those who refuse to believe without such signs. There is a difference between walking by faith and walking by sight. The word says, Seeing is believing. Jesus says, if you believed, you would see the glory of God. There's a big difference between the two. We are, we are commanded to, believe, to live by faith, not by sight. One day we will see. That one day has not yet arrived. The problem. Okay, let's go on to the next Section, the problem, or I should even use the plural, the problems. There are several problems with that position. And our opponents never tire to find these problems out to us. 
So we should be prepared to understand where the problems lie. Now you all agreed with me, I am assuming you did, and I saw your heads nodding, had a few amens in between. And I really like that because in Germany everyone is as quiet as a little church mouse. There is no ruffling of feathers, nothing. It's just dead silent. No amens. And you come to the States and Amen, brother. Especially in the South. Once when I was in Colombia studying theology, we had to look for a church to attend during these three years of being there. And I went to a Baptist church. And I sat in front row. And the pastor came. And he started preaching. He got louder and louder and louder. I went, Amen, brother! <laughs> but I had a heart attack or something <laughs> at that moment. Something happens. But it's just bizarre, isn't it? And it's great. I, I enjoyed it. I got used to it. <laughs> if we come to Germany, it would be a bit, bit different. <laughs> you wouldn't know where you are. Is this a nursing home or why is this? <laughs> A bit different. Okay, we have a few problems here which we need to address. The first problem, the psychology of presupposing. I admit that it is difficult to construe the psychology of such faith. How is it that people come to believe a word from God which contradicts all other normal means of knowledge? Okay, the word of God tells me something. And yet my entire experience, everything which had been taught by my teachers, tell me the very opposite. Almost every commercial I see on television tells me the very opposite of what the Word of God taught me. How is it possible that I can believe the one and reject the other, even though I'm bombarded day in and day out by the other message? How did Abraham come to know that the voice calling him to sacrifice his son was the voice of God? How is this explainable? I, in his shoes, would have thought, the devil is whispering in my ears. As a matter of fact, this is what my wife often tells me. You are the devil whispering in my ears. I don't want to go into the details of it. <laughs> this is something I often hear. <laughs> so, how did Abraham know this was the voice of God? The voice which earlier told him this is the son through whom the Messiah will come one day. And now he tells him sacrifice that son. That contradicts everything he knew. What voice taught him to do was contrary to fatherly instincts, normal ethical considerations, and even apparently contrary to other words of God. But he obeyed the voice and was blessed. Closer to our own experience, how is it that people come to believe in Jesus even though we have not, like Thomas, seen Jesus' signs and wonders. 
I cannot explain my psychology here to the satisfaction of very many. In this case, as in others, for we walk by faith, not by sight. We may have to accept the fact even without an explanation of the fact. Again, I try to follow the word of God despite my inner voice telling me this is absolutely foolishness. Think of that ex experience I had with that elderly head, uh, head elder. My instincts, my reasoning said, you just came from the States. Your business in the States blew up in smoke. You have nothing. We came from the States, I didn't even have a suit to wear. You know, as broke as broke can be. First thing the church did for us, they bought a suit for me so that I could stand on the pulpit with Robert, uh, the, the appropriate attire. My reason told me, do what they tell you to do. Comply. Don't ruffle any feathers. That's the wrong action here in this case. What will happen to you? You have to take care of a family. Our daughter was four or five and our son was two or one at the time. No savings, nothing. This is what my reason told me. This is what joy whispered into my ears. Don't ruffle any feathers. And she was right. We were in a desperate situation. But I heard another voice. And that voice told me not to give in. And it led to our resignation 16 months later. There was an immediate cause from that incident in the very first week. Did God bless? I don't want to tell you how he did it in our lives, but I tell you what happened to the church. It got utterly destroyed after we left. It didn't happen from one day to the next, but it did happen. The church still exists, but it's a shadow of its former self. The pastor whom I called after I left, the pastor after their own hearts, who refused to even talk to me, let alone shake my hand. He turned his back on me when I was called back to bury a dear old lady who had requested that I should bury her. He got a heart attack. 50, let's say 56 years old. One man in the church committed suicide. His three, possibly four, young families got divorced. And it could go on and on and on. There was one elder who stood behind me. He's still a very dear friend of mine. He said, after I left, 
Sodom und Gomorrah Burgarden mentioned. And he meant it literally. We need to listen to God's voice more carefully. It's not mystical. I'm not hearing any voices in the wee hours of the morning. I'm not. I'm studying the word of God. And this is how God speaks to me. We need to listen to that voice more carefully. Even if it contradicts all our experiences, all our reasons for behaving in a way contrary to that word. I can't explain it, how and why and, and what happens within me, but there is that conviction that we should obey God more than we should obey man. As I said, somehow God manages to get his word across to us despite the logical and psychological barriers without explaining how it works. Scripture describes in various ways a supernatural factor in divine human communication. Again, not mystical. I'm not a mystic. What do we always say? God uses the word, the written word, as his basis. And yet, the word is energized in my heart by the workings of the Holy Spirit. It's a living word. It's not a dead letter. It speaks of a power of words. The word created all things and directs the course of nature and history. What God says will surely come to pass. The gospel is the power of God unto salvation. Scripture also speaks of the personal power of the Holy Spirit operating with the word. Mysterious, though the process may be, somehow God illuminates the human mind to discern the divine source of the word. We know without knowing how we know. Okay, this was the first problem we had to address. The psychology between, um, uh, excuse me, the psychology of presupposing the word of God to be the absolute truth which we have to obey. Secondly, the content of our presuppositions. The content of our presuppositions. What precisely is the content of a believer's presuppositions? I have thus far spoken generally of presupposing the word of God. In one sense, our presupposition is simply the word of God itself, which for us is the content of scripture. Content. But of course, believers vary in their knowledge of the word of God. Our understandings of it always contain some degree of error. And we never reach an exhaustive knowledge of everything in scripture. An exhaustive knowledge includes, and this is my understanding, you may differ, but this is my understanding, includes, of course, its proper implications and applications. What does it help me if I know that I should not lie? If I continue on lying, what does it help me to know I should not lie? So the proper implications and the applications are part of knowing the word of God fully, in its full extent. Therefore, there is some change 
some development in our appropriation and use of our presuppositions. Since I believe that infants cannot be regenerated. Okay, I'm reformed, but here I do depart from some reformed teaching. Because I believe regeneration happens when the word of God is administered. And I can comprehend the truth of the word. And I don't believe an infant has that capacity. Okay? So in essence, we need to mature as human beings to a point when we do understand and can comprehend and act upon that knowledge. Now, God is absolutely necessary in that process. It's not a human ability. The natural man understands nothing but the Spirit of God. 1 Corinthians 2, verse 14. Nothing. So yes, it's a word of a work of God. He needs to help me come to an understanding of him and his word. He needs to regenerate me. I'm not able to do that on my own. Not at all. But I need to be mature in order to understand it. Now can a little child understand it? A little child can understand. Okay, I make a distinction between infants and little children. But by and large, I'm still reformed. (laughs) In well, some of my reformed friends would say, well... (laughs) You have some funny ideas too, but by and large I'm reformed. Reformed Baptists, so just to let you know where I stand. Okay. In one sense, all Christians presuppose God's entire word, for they are ruled by a spirit given desire to follow Jesus wherever he leads. Our specific applications of this presupposition, however, change over time as we grow in our appreciation and understanding of what God has said. Now, this should be a natural process. Once we are reborn, once we are spiritually alive, we should grow, we should mature in our faith and understanding. And we should be able more and more to put the word into practice. God's image or Christ's image in me should become more visible every single day. I should be more and more like him. And once our understanding is deepened and we comprehend more of God's truth, so yes, there is a process involved, but we still presuppose the entire word of God from the very first day our Christian life. Even though I understand, I don't understand 99% of it. I still presuppose it in its entirety. 
And it's my deep desire to follow Jesus and to understand it more and more. Doctrinal ideas may have to be corrected by other doctrinal ideas as we seek a more consistently biblical perspective. Many specific applications of our presuppositions therefore are corrigible. Corrigible, is this correct? Do I pronounce that correct? Need to be corrected. On the other hand, many such applications are not. Now, Listen carefully here. Some of our, our ideas about God need to be corrected. Some of the ideas should never ever be corrected. As a matter of fact, I hold to certain beliefs and if someone tells me I need to change that belief and if I don't, I will be burned on the stakes. I will not give in. By the grace of God, I will not give in. There are some truths about Christ, about God, which I will never give up, which I will never revise. The existence of God, the deity of Christ, his incarnation, his atonement, his resurrection, his return in glory. These are beliefs I will never give up, no matter what happens, by the grace of God. Okay, I cannot speak for myself, but I can say by the grace of God, I will not never give these beliefs up. These are the dearest beliefs I hold. And thus I engage in apologetics against all those who attack these beliefs. And they are attacked as fiercely today as at any other time. I was asked by um, Sue. She said I can call her Sue today. Up until today I called her Mrs. Conway. They came from, or they reside in Atlanta and we saw her briefly at the airport in Atlanta when we came to the States just a few days ago, my family and I. And we correspond, I don't know how many years, maybe two, maybe three, I, I, I forgot count, I, 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 I don't know really. But there are years <laughs> uh, that we correspond via email, she and other friends, not she, her alone, not she alone, but other friends, including her. And I really appreciate her effort. Now, I'm a very busy man. I have five different jobs I have to handle in three different countries and two different languages simultaneously. That takes some effort. And so my time is always at a premium. And I really appreciate her effort in researching certain theological questions I have. And she puts a lot of time into it. And when I'm really blessed to get her answers and usually she sends me articles being published on the internet which she has found bearing on the theological issues which I raised. She has read every article from beginning to end and highlighted all the important statements in red. 
So I just need to look at the red statements to get immediate understanding of the importance of what is said in these articles. This is a tremendous help. I can't really tell her how thankful I am, but I, I hope I do it in a small way now by just mentioning it. She spends hours and hours just helping me researching different issues. And I'm very, very blessed uh, to know that we are here now and that we actually, for the first time, well, apart from the short meeting at the airport in Atlanta a few days ago, that we are actually meeting person in person because she has indeed helped me tremendously. And I hope you have someone like her because this is a big blessing. Okay. Let me find my place. Um, the term presupposition then applies first to our fundamental disposition to follow Jesus and also to those fundamental doctrinal beliefs inseparately associated with that disposition. It may also apply in a secondary sense to changeable doctrinal beliefs. At the moment, I'm convinced of a doctrine of believer's baptism. And that belief often functions as a presupposition in my discussion, say, on the nature of a church. Yet I can easily imagine changing my position on baptism theoretically if someone presents me with a strong biblical argument on the other side. I have to be open to that possibility. Okay? Although I have pretty much heard all the arguments in favor of infant baptism, none of which have convinced me yet. But I have to be open to the possibility. Now I have a very clear understanding of eschatology and the teaching of the millennium, the uh, first year reign of Christ, as presented in the Revelation 20, verses 1 to 10. Why? Because I wrote a whole book about it. I spent a whole year or more than a year doing nothing else but think about the millennium and write my book on that subject. So I have a pretty clear understanding of what I believe, what others believe, and why I disagree with the others if they disagree with what I believe about it. Now, can I tell you that I will never ever change that position? I'm not going to tell you because I may have overlooked something which is more biblical than what I have found so far. And I readily admit to you when I have changed in my doctrinal positions, not in regard to millennium, this has not changed, but in regards to other positions. I have changed my doctrinal position, which I thought I will never change. As a matter of fact, as a seminary student, I still remember sitting in the car with some other seminary students. I was so convinced of my position, arguing for it, full throttle. I mean, I put some power behind my arguments. And I thought I floored them all. And then a few, a few years later, I had to eat humble pie and realize I was the dummy. I was wrong. I have to change and had to change. And uh, in a sense, thankfully, these friends were not around 
to tell me that I was the dummy, but I told it to myself. And it was painful enough. So I, I do change if I'm convinced by the scripture that I need to change. There are therefore many differences among Christians as to what doctrines precisely take on presuppositional force. In general, whatever one believes with certainty to be scriptural takes on that character for him. For if a doctrine is scriptural, that is what Jesus expects us to believe. And therefore, we must believe it. God desires the sacrifice of Isaac. Not, uh, was not originally one of Abraham's presuppositions. When he came, became convinced somehow that God wanted that, that proposition ended his presuppositional circle. After the angel appeared to end the episode, that proposition, for another reason, departed from his list of presuppositions. Different believers have different experiences, different rates of growth, different ups and downs, and hence different secondary presuppositions. But they are united in many fundamental doctrines, and especially in their primary disposition to serve Jesus. Hence, they are united in presupposing that Jesus is the Lord who deserves our unqualified allegiance. This is the bond of unity between all Christians, all true Christians. Okay, and I'm at the end of objection number two, so let's just take the break here and come back with the third problem, which is circularity. Yeah, okay, 10.45. 10.45.